You are listening to the Orange Songbook Podcast, hosted by Matthew Hewish, Oliver Davies and Toby Suda. The three second generation unificationists discuss topics that matter to them. Hello and welcome to Storytime with the Orange Songbook. I'm Ollie Davis. I'm here with Toby. Hey guys. And with Matt. Hello. Today we'll be discussing Reverend Moon's early life. Uh, using the autobiography as the main primary source for this. We'll pretty much be going through it and kind of commenting on bits that jump out to us, bits that strike us as quite interesting, because as a text, it is relatively different to a lot of the other texts, especially his speeches and uh, other accounts of his life, which I don't know about you guys, but I read in books in Sunday school and things like that. Yeah, it's quite an enjoyable read, actually. It's actually not that bad. Um, but it's definitely very... It has distinct sections. Like, you feel the differences from the first early childhood to his, like, yeah. adulthood and then to the end part of his the, life. The speeches and the speaking tours and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Do you um, reckon True Father actually wrote it? No. I think the styles are too different it, throughout. It's clearly written yeah. by a couple of people, at least probably three or four probably ghostwritten from interview. I mean, the beginning, it's all poetic and flowery. You know, I was wandering down the lane and the leaves and the sound of the thing was really nice. Whereas later on, it's like, I shook Gorbachev's hand rather than I shook Gorbachev's rough, but distinctively firm hand. You know, I think if it was the same writer, you'd see that thing carrying on through. But But there is an interesting thing, guys. This book was a bestseller. Yeah, but... Uh, was it, though? Because <laughs> basically all members were requested, which, which of course, is not a request. It's more of a requirement. They were required to purchase, what, 430 copies? And distribute them out. Per family, mm-hmm. and, and then distribute them to their friends and neighbours. So, of course, it's going to be a bestseller if you have a, a community of members who are buying bucket loads of these books. Was it bestseller only in Korea? I think so. I think so. I think so. But Korea's got a massive. I think it was only really published. I don't think it's published in the UK specifically. But you can buy it on Amazon and things like that, and or find the find PDF it. on Google. If or you yeah, <laughs> or you can just find it for free. <laughs> yeah. But having said that, as we've mentioned, it is a good read. Um, it's certainly very accessible. I'd be quite happy to give a copy of the book to a new person who's being introduced to the community or even my own children my, my oldest child is reading it right now it was used as uh, a witnessing tool to some respects it is very kind of personal it teaches the life lessons shows where those lessons came from it's not a theological philosophical text which i think is the reason why i like it yeah i think the reason i struggle with a lot of art kind of peace messages and stuff is they just I just get swamped in this theological nonsense sometimes and I just I can't digest it my mind wanders whereas a story is an engaging kind of medium and that's why we participate in it having said that there are sections of the book where it, it does feel like a lecture or guidance rather than a story it's interspliced isn't it there yes. are mo- there are moments where it's storytelling and other moments where it's self-reflection or I do quite like the balance for the, throughout the majority of the book of that, uh, oh, this is what happened in my life. And then suddenly, as if you imagine an old man reminiscing in his armchair or jump into, oh, and I felt like this at this particular time, seemingly irrelevant, 
but uh, it's quite charming in the way that an old man rambling about his family yeah. and his passions and regrets can be. And also, apparently, uh, Sanjanim likes to read this book, right? Quite she, a lot. She says that she keeps a copy on her person all the time and that she reads it a lot. That must be quite heavy for you, Sanjanim. So, have you I, heard I about think, the audio alternative, the Orange Songbook podcast? I, th- I think an MP3 weighs significantly less than an autobiography, does it not? Wait, so what are we attempting to do with this podcast? We're attempting to replace the autobiography. I think we're just going for an orange songbook summary of the book. We want to tell the story in a fun, engaging manner and have our own personal commentary on it. There's some nice life lessons that we're going to analyse and see how they're relevant to our own personal lives and then see what goes from there, I suppose. And going through the book kind of as research for this particular podcast... Um, I read it again in a different light and actually that was really enlightening for me. Bits were jumping out at me that I'd not seen before or bits that you know, I, I'd, I'd not realised were there were suddenly the most obvious thing on the page. So as we tell this story uh, about this Korean dude, I'd like to share those things as well. So if our listeners are not driving or operating heavy machinery, I recommend that you grab yourself a hot chocolate, chuck in some marshmallows, get yourself comfortable into a nice soft armchair and uh, settle down for story time. And if you don't have this book and you can't find it on PDF, ask one of thousands of families who have several hundreds of copies of these sitting in a cupboard somewhere collecting dust that they haven't managed to distribute. I've even got one in Spanish. Oh, really? Mm. But also, as Matt said, if you are driving, actually do listen to us, because I know a lot of our <laughs> listeners listen to us while travelling. <laughs> so, shall we jump into it? Sure thing. Chapter one. Take away, Ollie. Once upon a time. <laughs> In a galaxy far, far away. How do you start these stories? So in uh, North Korea, a town called Osan, which at the time, as we mentioned before, was actually part of Japan... In 1920, uh, the person who would later grow up to be known as Reverend Sun Myung Moon uh, was born. What was he called? He was called Yong Myung. Interesting. So in Korean culture, you change your name. Is that a thing, right? I don't think everybody in Korea changes their name. Is it not like, isn't it not like a childhood name and then an adulthood name? Is it? Yeah, I think there's some culture like that. I don't know if that... (laughs) I have no idea if this is accurate, by the sounds of it, you're not too certain. I'm not too certain, I'm completely (laughs) honest. I feel like we should have researched this first 30 seconds. Anyway, he basically went by another another name. Right, but at some point, do we know when exactly? He he decided to change his name, didn't he? I think it's when he became an adult, because that's the tradition in Korea at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Solid start, lads. So well researched. But there is certainly biblical precedent for name changes, isn't there? Yeah, as well as modern precedent. It's something that symbolizes, you know, a change of personality, a change of uh, heart, a change of mission, a change of life goal, Mm. identity. So I I can think of uh, the biblical Abraham. He started off as Abram. And then after he made the covenant with God, he became Abraham. His wife, Sarai, became Sarah. Or, Or his grandson, Jacob was given the name Israel when he had that wrestling match just the the night before meeting his brother Esau. Contemporary examples, I mean, we've got, we've got 
Prince, who's also the artist formerly known as Prince, and various Some other random symbols. <laughs> yeah. and... What about Joe Hisaishi, the composer for Studio Ghibli films? Oh. His name's something else I forgot, it's but he Japanese. he liked Quincy Jones, okay. and so he tried to make a Japanese version of Quincy Jones, and it came out as Joe Hisaishi, <laughs> or his pronunciation. Wow. Because you know they say the surname first in Japan, so, oh, right. so Jones Quincy, Joe Quincy Hisaishi, Quincy Hisaishi. So somewhere along the line, it got a bit lost. Is he like famous in Japan? He he does all the music for all the Studio Ghibli films. So any Studio Ghibli oh, fan he's, would be. Yeah, he, oh, he's yeah, yeah. he's mega famous. He, honestly, he is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you change your identity in an extreme way, I mean, we've got the 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 person you formerly known as Bruce Jenner. Who is now Caitlyn Jenner? Oh God! Is this Woman of the Year? Yeah. <laughs> so apparently, the person who won Woman of the Year last year was a woman for a few months mm. before winning. So that's a bit offensive to women, isn't it? It's like even men can be better at being women than actual women. Is that not what it infers? And the ironic thing is, feminists wouldn't argue against that because, because yeah, then their whole argument uh, collapses because they're on the same political wing. Anyway, we're we're diverging here. Indeed, the point was that as as a child, the person we know as true father was called by his parents Yang Myung. Mm. He later changed it to Sun Myung. Actually, interesting. His mother says that he was born with very small eyes. Aren't all Asians born with very small eyes? <laughs> but that says a lot coming from an Asian. She said she had to like try and open <laughs> open his eye slots with her hands so they're exceptionally small exceptionally coin slotty yeah coin slotty and so he got the nickname Osan's little tiny eyes Osan was the village that he grew up in I suppose kind of cute cute story but it's interesting this whole chapter is primarily about two things it's one about his family how he grew up in quite a loving and nurturing family um, I think that also does say a lot about the Korean culture at the time and also his love for nature and growing up in that kind of rural environment and how that's managed to give him a deep connection which we'll see reflected later on throughout the life story uh, deep connection to nature and how that directly connected to his relationship with everything spiritual and God and things like that Mm -hmm. Well, I think also the fact that Korea was occupied by Japan at the time also has a big effect on his actions and his way of thinking, which we will shed some more light on. Another thing very important in Korean culture, food, Mm. especially the sharing of such. Mm. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have ever visited a Korean family um, and you are honor bound and required to eat as much food as you can and then some. (laughs) Um, Yes, I have enjoyed. Suffered, endured. I have, I and I. It, it starts out enjoying. Yeah. In the end, it turns into suffering as you realise I have to finish this, otherwise I'm letting everybody down. Of course, the, the traditional greeting in Korea is "Have you eaten?" It's a way of expressing care and concern for the other person and an opportunity for hospitality. Originally, they were quite a wealthy family. Apparently, the granddad did quite well, but eventually, I guess, under the circumstances of the occupation, the wealth ran out, and then times became a bit tough. Wealthy families became fewer and far between. And that's a good example of where we got to see kind of their hospitality towards people because, you know, it's easy to be nice to someone, but... When you have a lot. When you have a lot, but in tough times to be nice to someone is really kind of quite an exemplary attitude. And so a lot of people who were kind of leaving uh, leaving Korea to 
go to Manchuria. I have no idea where Manchuria is. China. Um, it's it's the part of China which is directly above Korea, basically. I see. I see. So yeah, anyway, a lot of people would stop at their house for, for food, I guess, on the way there. I'm curious about who these people were. Were they political refugees? And if they were, then True Father's family were basically aiding fugitives. Fugitives is a relative term when you're under occupation. Remember that. True. But perhaps there was some risk involved in mm. hosting such travellers. So their hospitality was not only generous, but it was also sacrificial. Mm. I think there's definitely an element of that. Because even Father talks about how he spent time with beggars and made friends with people who were really down and how that was a perfectly acceptable thing. I mean, imagine doing that nowadays. There was no social stigma attached to it. Yeah, exactly. Or perhaps if there was, he didn't care. Or his family didn't care, Mm. rather, because otherwise his family would have taken him away from that situation. But it shows a really interesting Now we're so suspicious of kind of anyone, aren't we? Like, I don't trust beggars. Like, I don't feel inclined to give them money because I don't trust them. I don't no, trust I would never give a beggar money. money. I was at Victoria Station the other day. Mm-hmm. A beggar came up to me asking me for money to buy some food. I offered them what was in my hand at that moment, and they said they didn't want it. The food in your hand? Precisely. Mm-hmm. So they wanted the money for something else. That's what I'm guessing. And this is the part of the book where we start to see his character start to develop. And when we think of Reverend Moon, we think of him in certain personality types very very stubborn uh, definitely definitely very stubborn very self-sacrificial very caring and not very individualistic i don't know if you were like me but in sunday school you would hear stories about you know beating up bullies and this and that and this and that and we'd think wow so cool but then when you read it again you're like actually you were a really violent kid (laughs) and you made it really difficult for your parents to raise you and actually, it's really interesting how he specifically says that in the autobiography. He specifically mm. says, oh, I was a nightmare for my parents. I think a violent kid's not a bad thing. I'm I, trying to justify my past here. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I heard somebody just, just over the weekend talk about how children who, who behave well at school but misbehave at home, that's actually a healthy thing because when you're at school, you're, you don't feel free to be yourself. You kind of have to conform to the expectations of behavior. But when you're at home, you can just be free to be whoever you are. And you know that even if you make mistakes, you will be loved. You will be forgiven. So perhaps actually that's the sign of a healthy childhood. Or you could argue that somebody who has that real awareness of, you know, the social constraint is not necessarily in the correct position to be a messianic figure whose job it is, almost by definition, is to rebel. Right, and he did rebel against unrighteousness, beat up the bully. We also see this different side of him where he talks about how he was kind of inclined to share food with kids who weren't as well off as him or had didn't have anything he would trade. He had this uncle, right, who, who grew melons. He had a melon patch. Yeah. And... The way that the autobiography describes this uncle was that he was rather greedy. Perhaps. He was protective over his melon patch. Prudent, perhaps. Yeah, but obviously, as he loved his nephew, when Moon asked for a melon, his uncle said, sure, eat as many as you want. So that night, he gathered all the local village kids, um, and at midnight, they went and... <laughs> decimated, <laughs> decimated the completely patch. destroyed all his melons. Yeah, so but he was then, a heavenly troublemaker. Yeah, his uncle was very angry. <laughs> his uncle was very angry initially, but after justifying, he said, "I could eat as many as I wanted." Then his uncle kind of saw saw the truth in his argument and 
accepted defenseless it. against that logic yeah. of love yeah but what's also interesting is that true father says that he used to view this as a game like not that situation with his uncle but just like trading food with other kids it was a it was a bit of a game trading food you mean what what do you mean by that See, um, this isn't where I'm not quite sure where it's open to interpretation, but where he would see someone with not as good food as him or not enough food, he would give them his food. And then he kind of sounds like he just viewed life a bit of a game. Well, for instance, his family was relatively well off, so he could eat rice, whereas other kids not so well off would be confined to just millet and things like that, you know, less nutritious grains. Which Which is ironic because these days I think we would argue the opposite. Yeah, I know. The rougher and more difficult it is to digest something, then the healthier we tend to think it is. But what interests me is this kind of concept of life as a game. Because I don't know about you, but I often think, like, I I do view life a bit of a game. Maybe it's because you're still a child. No, not in that sense. Like, you've got decisions, you take gambles. At the end of the day, if something goes horribly wrong, something unfortunate happens and you pass away, you just lost the game, you made a wrong decision. Ah, well, that's the end of the game. Because life is hard. You have to do hard things in life. And in order to be able to go through life, enjoying it, enjoying even the difficult things, it helps to have such a playful attitude about Mm. all all the things that you have to do. Mm. So his family at this time generally were quite anti-imperialist. Mostly influenced by his great uncle. He defied the Japanese occupation and he'd been to jail and been tortured and things like that. And this is the first mention that we get of the influence in his life that became the the revolutionary figure that we see in him. That kind of standing against Japanese imperialism, later on North Korean communism, fighting against this kind of... Injustice. Injustice, lack of freedom. Do you think that coloured his attitude towards the Japanese, though? Oh, almost definitely. The fact that as he was reflecting this, to write in his autobiography, the fact that he brought his great uncle up this early on in his life shows that he considers it an influence. There's something else which is very interesting which happens at this time of his life where he talks about his developing love for Chinese character verses. Yeah, that also came from the same great uncle. Really? Yeah. And I think that's something that was definitely carried on throughout his whole life. So when he was 10 years old, his family converted to Christianity. What were they before? Confucian, I guess. The the typical Korean religion, for want of a better word, philosophy if you wanted to be a little bit more accurate. It's not really a a religion in the sense that you have holy scriptures and a messianic figure. It's more like the ethics of life as described by Confucius, who described how society should work. Uh, And the highest virtue in that society is filial piety. So as we go through the book at this point in time, we have a lot of uh, nice little stories about how he used to always cry and it's really interesting the way that he says it. So I was the loudest crier in the village. You know, everyone gave me the nickname, the day crier. It's almost as if that stubborn nature is coming out even now. That would be so just annoying. Like, oh yeah, I didn't just cry. I was the best at crying. <laughs> like he's <laughs> a proper tantrum kind of kid, right? Yeah, but it's interesting how he says it as a positive thing. <laughs> it's like no, even the negative things I was the best at. You see, I look at my children and I see their, what I perceive to be their negative or annoying characteristics. And I do try to think, actually, these are potentially good characteristics if they are nurtured. Mm-hmm. And I suppose Father Moon, in reflecting about his early life, recognised that these characteristics, which could be perceived as annoying... <laughs> were for a heavenly cause. It was all preparation for the Church of Tears, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) 
Is this what it is? <laughs> His ability to cry. This is where we get the stories very famous you know some kid gave him a bloody nose and he went to stand outside his house for a month waiting for an apology um that sounds like stalking doesn't it It does kind of sound a bit creepy i think the way the story makes it sound is like he did nothing else except for stand outside this kid's house <laughs> i'm sure he did some other things same with when he beat up a tree for six months straight <laughs> yeah. it's very much like it paints the picture that that's all he did all day long standing it's like rocky, a tree. rocky montage style but it is reflecting on this stubbornness this love of justice and he's competitive absolutely so competitive even now the way that he's writing about those things is very competitive it's fascinating and then there's a really interesting part right after he talks about that suddenly the tone of the chapter really changes and he starts talking about his family and how much he missed them especially his sister this is from the grown-up perspective from the grown-up perspective suddenly it goes present tense and he talks about the pain that he felt when he had to leave them behind. And it is poignant. If you think about it, he probably left his family behind in, in the 1940s, maybe early 1950s. That was the last time he saw them. And for the next, what, 40 odd years, he went back to his hometown in 1991, I think it was. So that's a good 40 year period, if not more, when he never saw his family members. And I just imagine a man sitting in a chair talking about his childhood and then suddenly thinking about, wow, actually, after that, I didn't see them very much. So that section is a window into the very human side of... It it strikes me as very deep and I didn't notice it until reading it recently that actually that chapter is very real, hits home very hard. Then we go on to the next section and this is where he reveals that he was born in the year of the monkey... Why is that important? Because that's not important. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe that's why he liked climbing trees. No, that's not the reason he liked climbing trees. The reason he liked climbing trees is because he was a kid and all kids like climbing trees. Mm, mm, mm. I never got the chance to climb trees as a child. Because you couldn't? No, because you're too big and all the trees were smaller than you. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just can't get my head around this whole astrology thing. Does my head in. So only kids once every 12 years climb trees because they're born in the year of the monkey. I was born in the year of the monkey. Do you like climbing trees? Exceptionally good at climbing trees. Case closed. Case closed. There's a tree right outside our studio, which has my name carved in from when I was five, six years old. Actually has all our names carved in. Wait, because we all climbed it. Oh, wait, there goes the theory. (laughs) (laughs) Koreans are into that kind of thing, though. Or in general, in the East, they're quite into that kind of thing. Climbing trees? No, no. no. <laughs> the zodiac. Oh uh, right, yeah. I mean, we also have our Greek zodiac, don't we? Yeah, but unless you read tabloid newspapers, I think there's a hunger that the people have for meaning more beyond just our current reality. We want to see ourselves in the context of the universe and looking at the dates on which we were born in in a certain time of the year or in a certain period within a twelve year. Well, you could say a religious spiritual lifestyle is the same thing. Yeah. Maybe it's a bit superstitious, but mm. it reflects a longing. So we've gone over quite a lot, and there's quite a. I've noticed there's a lot of nostalgia, glorified nostalgia, in the sense that everything he did was really great and really grand. That's kind of how we remember our childhoods in general. Isn't exactly. It? If, we, if we've lived relatively loving childhoods. Definitely. Like, I'm sure you, well, all of us here, whenever we think back to something we did, we were really good at it. 
it was a really incredible big situation when if you think of it from maybe an adult perspective now it was like oh that's cute but that's not so special i suppose because from the context of a child Mm. such experiences are so big and important at that time in your life but not only that those things actually do shape your life even though they might seem small and insignificant from the outside actually actually that tree that i previously mentioned i was up there with a friend once and i slipped I managed to hold on to a branch and I remember looking up at him, my eyes connected with his, like, save me. And he just stood there frozen. Well, like Lion King. That is a perfect (laughs) example, except it wasn't a cliff. It was was a tree and one not so high up. But anyway, that branch snapped, like, to the point where I was still hanging on. The branch was still there, just hanging on by a thread. And you fell into the Valley of Gazelles. And then I fell down what felt like an eternity, my arms swinging. And then I landed on like a tree stump right in the middle of my back. Ouch. And I remember like the slow motion fall as I was just looking up at him, like as he just did nothing. And the fact that I still remember that and I've almost limited our friendship to the point like we're great friends. But if it was a life or death situation, I would die. I've, <laughs> I've accepted that as our friendship. So, but that's interesting because that's a memory of a five-year-old that has lasted 20 years now. So, for an example, if you were to write an autobiography, that is a story that would go 100%, into 100%. Interesting. But in that sense, what does that say about his stories? Is, is there a potential that there's some form of exaggeration? Well, that's the thing. Exaggeration from what perspective? From the child's perspective, that exaggeration... It doesn't really exist because it's very real and it shapes your personality. Mm. Even if the actual events didn't happen precisely the way they were described, Mm -hmm. it reveals something about the way it was experienced by the storyteller, that that, it had such an impact on them. Mm. If anything, that's more real. Don't you think so? I 100% agree. I really do. Wow, we're getting philosophical about reality. (laughs) Let's not go there too far. So the nice thing about this autobiography is not just a tale about a man. He also throws in a bunch of tidbits, uh, kind of life lessons and, and bits of philosophy here and there. And one that we keep seeing over and over and over again is about nature and how, you know, if you can harmonize with nature, you can harmonize with people and that nature really gives a good example of how society should be and these kinds of things. Like, for instance, is if you listen to nature, everything's in harmony, nothing kind of overrides the other sounds. But then now that I'm thinking about it, the Dawn Chorus is all about competition, isn't it? I was the other day listening to the birds singing while praying outdoors. And the thing which I reflected on was that there's a purpose behind the communication. Whether it's a chick calling out to its parents, longing for food, it's yearning for a relationship, yearning for an attachment. If it's a bird which is trying to find its mate, it's calling out for a relationship, calling out for an attachment. If it's a group of birds calling to each other as part of a social group to warn each other about threats or dangers, or I don't know, just to connect with each other in the early morning to remind each other that they are there, it's a reflection of the yearning for relationship. And I reflected about human beings, how we also need to communicate that just praying is is the act of offering words to God to connect with God. The majority of it is actually territory disputes. But you need to communicate about that, don't you? Fair enough. It's about defining <laughs> this the is relationships. My Get off my branch. <laughs> Precisely. And that way you're clear. There's no misunderstanding. So when I look at True Father, I tend to see someone who is reasonably libertarian, even anarchistic in his 
philosophy. He looks at the world and he sees that there are no laws or governing authorities telling people how to behave. People just behave. Animals behave in the way that they do. Mm. And yet he sees harmony in that. So when he studies nature, it teaches him about harmony. And I think True Father's teachings, his worldview, his philosophy are deeply influenced by that. The story continues about how he really is a model student or was a model student back in the days. A really hard to raise kid, but yet also a model student. Interesting. But I don't think, yeah, a terrible kid is... I mean, I think... I mean, to be honest, screw the school system. They they, <laughs> they, they give us a lot of reasons to be angry as young kids. Um, but so, for example, he attended the Osan School, which was a nationalist school, and it was active in the independence movement. Not only was the Japanese language not taught, but students were actually forbidden to speak Japanese. But this is the really crucial part of the story, which we have something to take away from. He had a different opinion on this. He felt we have to know our enemy if we are to defeat it. Now, there's two interesting things there. One is the obvious, we need to know our enemy, and he ended up being fluent in Japanese. Those members in Japan will tell you that although he was fluent, he was very difficult to understand. But <laughs> he was second... difficult to understand in Korea. <laughs> oh, yeah, as well. no, that's also true. <laughs> but also, the second thing is, is he considered Japan an enemy? Maybe he's just saying that at the time they were considered the enemy. Yeah, but it, it's very interesting, even at that early age. Well, he's going to a nationalist school, which is indoctrinating him in the belief that there is an enemy and we are not going to speak their language. I'm not even sure if such a school was allowed. I mean, the fact that they were prohibiting the use of Japanese, despite the fact that the occupying imperialistic forces probably would have enforced it. Yeah. I, I suspect that such a school, had it been discovered, could have been shut down. So do you think there's a potential that there's some form of exaggeration again in this story? No, that's not what I'm insinuating. I, I do believe that such a school existed. Uh, I feel that the anti-Japanese feeling amongst the, the, the indigenous Korean population was probably very real. And this school was a way for the local community to organize themselves in order to somehow actively rebel in the only way that they could, which was educating their children about who they were, making sure they didn't forget their identity and making sure that they had this antagonism towards Japanese imperialism. Mm -hmm. And yet, as a child, the young Sun Myung-moon, or Young Myung-moon, he... Is that a pun? <laughs> Unintentionally. He recognised that actually, if we are to defeat this enemy, and again, defeating the enemy can mean two different things. From a Christian perspective, you love your enemy, don't you? So to defeat this enemy, you need to love them. And one way to love them is by learning their language, to be able to communicate with them and understand them. Lads, we got to learn Korean. ASAP. Are you trying to say that the Koreans are the enemy? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Tobes. <laughs> I've often wanted to learn Korean just so I could argue against decisions or, or lectures, which I disagree with, but of course wouldn't be able to say anything if yeah. I wouldn't be able to communicate in that language. So apparently Trufile was fluent in Japanese. Did he also say he was fluent in English? I mean, people said he was fluent in English. His English was surprisingly okay. If he... you're a native English speaker, I think you could make out what he was trying to say. No, 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 no. <laughs> so it's not okay, a good translator. <laughs> But no, what's interesting is that I've heard True Father can learn a language in one week. Um, oh, he can speak English fluently. I can learn any language he wants. And it's just this almost this kind of scary 
idolatry is that the right word or this Something belief like that, that he can do anything because he is the messiah that's not in the autobiography true father never s- said that he could speak english fluently did that's he? the interesting thing here it talks about i learned this by doing this i went to school and i learned this and later on we'll see oh i had to ask these questions and i had to go through this in order to learn that it's really interesting how it's so clear here when he talks about his own life yeah i mean we are kind of jumping slightly ahead but what's interesting is the fact that yeah he he had to learn all these things but i've heard some people talk about true father as the all-knowing messiah who can automatically do everything and can do anything he wants naturally without any form of learning and it's almost scary this kind of do you know what that reminds me of go for it it reminds me of the scene in the life of brian the uh, monty python film. The, the documentary life of brian <laughs> <laughs> uh where you see these people who are chasing the messianic figure who you know he doesn't claim to be messianic but the the population think he is and and he while trying to run away he leaves behind one of his sandals one of his shoes and they pick up this shoe and they start worshiping the shoe and then someone else brings out a gourd which is like a pumpkin or a vegetable and starts worshiping the gourd and you can see how people do idolize someone a bit excessively and what's refreshing about the autobiography is, yes, True Father does make some grand claims about himself, but it doesn't seem overly far-fetched. And he does talk about things which could be seen as a negative as well. It's very interesting how he openly admits he was not the perfect son, even though he preaches filial piety as one of the greatest virtues that a person can have. He's very open to admit that actually that's something he had to learn. He did something to a cow, right? Yes, um, there was a cow that his family owned, I believe, but he didn't like feeding the cow. So one time he tied it up and ran away, But <laughs> which is totally natural as a kid. I mean, there's better things to do than feed a cow. Why are you looking at me so judgmentally? <laughs> no, I've never fed a cow before. And honestly speaking, I'll be very honest with you, I don't feel terribly affectionate towards cows. They are oh. delicious. Though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but ultimately, he felt guilty. He heard the cow mooing in the distance and um, he came back. But he said this is important in every person's life. Not this exact situation, but learning from experiences. So he, he did things which you could call mistakes or he was perhaps self-centered. I mean, in that moment of not feeding the cow, he was being self-centered. But he was able to reflect on it. He was moved by the mooing of the cow. The mooing of the cow. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Mm. The one thing that we can take away from this chapter is father had a childhood. Right. Do you know what I find really refreshing, lads, is the fact that reading his autobiography, which may not be an autobiography, but his story is very refreshing in the sense that, yeah, we get to see him as a real person. It's relatable. It's relatable. That's the key word, Matt, it's relatable, because often when I was growing up as a second gen, you always hear stories about True Father as this perfect human being who always did everything right, and you you can't help but kind of not compare yourself or just not be able to relate to him in any sense, and therefore you can never really imagine leading a similar lifestyle because you're just completely on different wavelength. By comparison, if we look at the life of Jesus Christ, there's an incredible scarcity of information about his Infancy. We just have two stories, basically. His birth. Which is dubious. Right. And also his bar mitzvah, when he 
comes of age and is presented to the temple and his parents lose him on the way home. So by comparison, thankfully, we have quite a lot of information about True Father's infancy and his childhood from his own mouth and also from others. It also means that we have potential to do great things ourselves. Damn right. Because we don't need to be born in this special position. We don't need to be granted a gift of divine lessons and herald angels and things marking our existence. We have some very good examples that will follow in the next podcast, directly relating to what Ollie just said. But just to conclude chapter one, the child, Sun Myung-moon, he, he, as he grows older and grows in his maturity he starts becoming preoccupied with the question of what he will be when he's older. Obviously, the Japanese occupation had a big impact in his choices, but also a significant event in his early life was that, as Ollie has already mentioned, at the age of 10, his family converted to Christianity. And subsequently, he was consumed with questions dealing with life and death and the sufferings and sorrows of human existence. And if there's anything we know about Korean Christianity is that it's exceptionally zealous. Mm. Even today, Korean Christianity is very enthusiastic and devout. So I'm sure that his family would have been incredibly devoted to their Christian faith. And this was an important part of the childhood experiences of the young Sung Young-moon. So next week, we'll go into chapter two of the book, right, lads? And this will be part two, which starts with the chapter, A River of Heart Flows with Tears. I would advise that if you do want to kind of keep up to date, grab the book and read up to where we are. You can see more of the exact quotes because maybe we kind of went off on a tangent at points. The book is conveniently laid out so that one whole chapter has little mini sections. So you could reasonably read one mini section a day. It's just maybe four or five pages each and then reads the entire chapter within a week. It is a nice read, even if you've read it before. Reading it again is worth it. Mm. So thank you guys for joining us on the Orange Songbook podcast this week. We will be back next week with chapter two. Please follow us on Instagram at Orange Songbook. Our Twitter handle is Orange Songbook. Our website is www.orangesongbook.com. Also join in on our forums at Facebook. Please get involved in the discussion and share the word. And we hope you enjoy this different style, I guess, this week, because it's been fun for us to do. Yeah. So have a good week, guys, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Bye. You've been listening to the Orange Songbook Podcast with Matthew Hewish, Oliver Davies, and Toby Suda, with support from Patrick German and music by Jude Grooves. Join the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, and on the web at orangesongbook.com, where you can find all our previous episodes. <laughs>